has anyone here done the Alpha course? Anyone done the Alpha course? Yeah, a few of you. Um, if you've done that course, you'll know that the, the presenter, a guy called Nicky Gumbel, an Englishman, he tells a story about uh, a young police cadet, someone who is um, training to be a police officer, and he comes to his final set of exams at Hendon Police College, North London, and he, um, he's sitting this exam, and in the exam he comes across a particular question. And the question is this, you're on patrol in outer London when an explosion occurs in a gas main in a nearby street. On investigation, you find that a large hole has been blown in the footpath and there is an overturned van lying nearby. Inside the van, there is a strong smell of alcohol. Both occupants, a man and a woman, are injured. You recognize the woman as the wife of your, as the wife of your divisional inspector who was at present away in the USA. A passing motorist stops to offer you assistance and you realize that he is a man who was wanted for armed robbery. Suddenly a man runs out of a nearby house shouting that his wife is expecting a baby and that the shock of the explosion has made his birth imminent. Another man is crying for help, having been blown into an adjacent canal by the explosion, and he cannot swim. Bearing in mind the provisions of the Mental Health Act, describe in a few words what action you would take. (laughs) The officer thought for a moment, picked up his pen and wrote, I would take off my uniform and mingle with the crowd. (laughs) Have you ever read the pages of scripture? Have you ever been reading the Bible and you've come across a passage or a verse or a story maybe and you thought, I have no idea what to do with that. It's completely confusing. I hope so, because it happens to me quite regularly. Um, And what I'd like to do this morning is to look at one of those stories, a confusing story, um, and it's found in Matthew chapter 15. So if you've got a Bible, would you turn to Matthew chapter 15? Um, A short little story starting at verse 21. Matthew 15, verse 21. Matthew 15, verse 21. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman came, a Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him, Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Yes, Lord, she said. But even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your word, your written word to us, we ask that by your spirit, you would open our eyes and our minds, our hearts, our lives. Would we see you, 
the living word clearly here. And would you shape us into your image, we pray. Amen. Well, at first glance, this is a confusing story, isn't it? It's confusing. Jesus comes across as downright mean, doesn't he, really? This woman, she approaches Jesus, it says, in verse 22, and she calls out, Lord, or or, Sir, Master, a term of respect in those days. And then she says, Son of David, which was the Jewish title for the Messiah. So she acknowledges that this is the one sent from God to make all things right. And then she follows that up with, have mercy on me, which was the traditional cry of a beggar in those days. So her daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. She approaches Jesus and she comes with reverence, with faith, with humility. And what does Jesus do? Matthew says, he did not answer a word. Or one translation says, he ignored her. He ignored her. What's going on here? Why does Jesus, the friend of sinners, treat this woman like that? Any ideas? Well, I, I want, one possibility, maybe the obvious one, is that Jesus quite simply is exhausted. His, his, his ministry has been attracting huge crowds. If you read over the previous two chapters and you see what Jesus has just undergone, he's exhausted. He can't get away from people. And so Matthew says in verse 21 that Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And if you, you know your geography of the, of the region, that was, that was the coastal region on the Mediterranean. Today it would be modern day Syria and Lebanon. So Jesus surrounded by people, so desperate to get some rest and some peace, he's forced to flee his homeland to go up the coast to another country and have some respite from the crowds there. And this woman turns up. And and Mark actually says in his account of the story that Jesus tried to keep his presence there a secret. But this woman finds out. And she comes and she, she falls on her knees with one more request. Maybe Jesus is so utterly exhausted that this is one request too many. What do you reckon? Is that a good explanation for the story? Well, I don't think it holds water myself. Because elsewhere in the gospel narratives, Jesus is often exhausted physically, emotionally, and yet he never turns anyone away when they come to him with sincere faith and ask him for help. He's on the cross, Easter, and someone cries out, a criminal, would you have mercy on me? And Jesus does. Well, some commentators, some learned biblical scholars who have looked at the story, they, they say that maybe the explanation for this bizarre treatment of the woman is not that Jesus is tired, but that Jesus is torn. Inwardly, he's divided, he's confused about what he should do in that particular moment. Jesus says to the woman in verse 24, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. And there is a sense in which Jesus, he was sent to the people of Israel as the fulfillment of all their hopes and dreams, as as their promised Messiah. But Jesus' intention was that they would then go and make disciples of all nations, as he says at the end of this gospel to his followers. But the immediate focus of his ministry during his time on earth was certainly Israel. And yet this woman's not an Israelite, she's a Canaanite. And so some commentators say that when Jesus says these words to her, he's actually... He's actually internally wrestling with whether he should make an exception uh, in the case of this woman and, and help her, a foreigner. 
when his immediate public ministry was Israel. He's, he's wrestling with what he should do. Do you think that makes sense? Does that hold water? Oh, just a few shakes of the head. I agree. I don't, I don't think so. Because other places in the gospel accounts, when a foreigner comes to Jesus, like in Matthew 8, just a few chapters before, a Roman centurion, a soldier comes and says, Jesus, would you heal my servant? And what does Jesus do? Immediately, he responds. So why in this case, on this occasion, with this woman, does Jesus indicate to her that he's not going to respond, and then later on, does exactly that, helps her out? What's going on? Are you confused? I'm confused. Well, I, I, I hope we won't be confused in a minute or two. I wonder whether the clue to this story, an interesting little account in the, in the gospel narrative, is actually the disciples' response to this woman. Look at how the disciples respond. In verse 23, they say, send her away. Send her away. Get rid of her. For she keeps crying out after us. They've got no time for this woman. Why? Well, remember, it says that Jesus is in Tyre and Sidon. So this woman is from Tyre and Sidon. And the Jews despised the people who lived there. There was a saying, um, the first century historian, Josephus, he wrote that the people of Tyre and Sidon are our most bitter enemies. Even Jesus himself, you may remember the, 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 the occasion. Jesus himself once said to the people, the Jewish crowds that were listening to him, he said, even Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment will be better off than you, the cities of Israel, if they had seen the miracles I've performed in front of you. They would have repented. In other words, do you hear what he's saying? Even the most wicked people you can imagine, even the people that you think are beyond the, the, the hope of redemption, they would have repented if they'd seen these miracles. So the disciples, because of this woman's ethnicity, if nothing else, think that Jesus has no time for her. That I've got no time for her. Send her away. But it's not just her ethnicity. There are two strikes against this woman. She's a woman. It's her gender also that's probably at stake in this story. There was an ancient rabbinic saying at the time that went like this. He who talks with a woman in public brings evil on himself, neglects the study of the law, and in the end will inherit Gehenna or hell. Not a particularly positive approach to, to gender issues in those days. So the religious establishment in Jesus' day would have completely ignored this woman. They, they, would, have, they would have ignored her. If you were a devout Jew, if you were a, a, a self-respecting rabbi, no less than Jesus, you would not have talked to this woman. You would have ignored her. In fact, there are a whole bunch of people you would have ignored. Who are some of them? Lepers? Tax collectors? Samaritans? Jewish society divided people into categories. There were those that were clean, and there were those that were unclean. There were those that you regarded as righteous and those that were unrighteous. There were those you embraced and those you excluded. Now, this has happened all through history, hasn't it? It's not just ancient Israel. One researcher has calculated that today there are over 33,000 denominations of Christianity in the world. 33,000. I'm most of them, it would have to be said, are the result of one group breaking away from another group because the other group wasn't good enough or pure enough or whatever it was. I, I, I belong to a Baptist church. Do you realize there are over 100 species of Baptist alone in this world today? 
there, there are, if you know your Baptist church history, there are general Baptists and particular Baptists in America. There are northern Baptists and southern Baptists. There are free will Baptists, seventh-day Baptists, hard-shell Baptists. Anyone a hard-shell Baptist here? No? My personal favorite is this, two-seed-in-the-spirit predestinarian Baptists. There was one group called the Church of God, and they had an argument, as churches often do, and so one disgruntled group broke away and called themselves the true Church of God. The only problem was they then had a split, and the breakaway group called themselves the only true Church of God. (laughs) And it's not just in the church. I mean, this is we see it throughout our world. This is the human predicament. This is the, the human condition. Our fallenness, our tendency to divide, to exclude, to embrace. And you see it everywhere. You see it on TV. Every week, turn on TV and watch a reality TV show. I listened to your message last week just to get a feel for what's been going on in, in the church here, and you made reference to it, the one I think. For me, I think I saw this most clearly when Susan Boyle a few years ago, do you remember Susan Boyle? Made her first appearance on Britain's Got Talent, the, the TV show in Britain. And here was this 48-year-old lady who was somewhat awkward um, in, in a number of ways. Some would say a little frumpy and, and didn't present as well as she might. She stood up on this stage, a 48-year-old spinster who by her own admissions had never been kissed. And the audience, the studio audience, as the camera panned around them, they looked at her and they wrote her off. They excluded her. They just just rejected her. You could see it, scorn, sniggers of derision. Until she started singing. And there were gaping mouths. And they realized this woman has got talent. She's actually got something quite special. And people were on their feet, standing ovation. Simon Cowell wanted to sign her up immediately afterwards. She became an overnight sensation. President Obama wanted to meet her. She declined, which is pretty cool. She thought, no, I've I've got things to do. Um, But this tendency to, to, to embrace or exclude, we do it all the time. You know, there are the beautiful in our world, and there are the ugly. There are the, the thin, the fat. There are the talented, the not so talented. There are the young, and there are the old now. There are the rich, there are the poor. There are those that are worth investing in, if you're a leader, looking at your people. And there are those that perhaps aren't worth investing so much of your time in. There, there, are, there are white, there are black. There are those that, that are like you, and there are those that aren't like you. There are those we embrace, and there are those that we exclude. Do you see it? We do it all the time. We play favorites, and that's what the disciples are doing here. They assume that Jesus has no interest in this Canaanite woman. And so Jesus, I think, in this situation, is using this encounter to skewer that assumption. And and he's a a brilliant teacher, Jesus. So he doesn't just tell them. He doesn't just lecture to them and say, you're wrong. God doesn't play favorites. What does Jesus do? He shows them. He lets them observe this woman's persistence, this woman's faith in in, in the Jewish Messiah as as he holds her at arm's length. Three times he effectively repels her. First time, he just, he just ignores her, Matthew says. The second time, he says, in effect, you're not one of us, so why should I give you the time of day? 
You know, is she going to hang around? Is she going to persevere? Is she going to keep trusting this, this rabbi? She does. And then the third time, in verse 26, Jesus tests her faith by saying, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Now, the meaning was perfectly clear, what Jesus was saying there. The children referred to the people of Israel, the children of God. The dogs, well, they were the Gentiles. The the Jews often called the unclean Gentiles dogs. Because in those days, the society was very different to ours. We live in a Canaanite, Canaanite, we live in a canine-loving society where people, you know, pamper their dogs, mollycoddle their dogs, shampoo their dogs, love their dogs. In those days, of course, dogs were regarded generally as unclean scavengers. And so the Jews called Gentiles dogs, a term of derision and contempt. Jesus is just giving voice to his his disciples' theology. But even though it's a harsh term that he uses, Jesus softens his expression a little for the sake of this woman. He's holding her off, but but he gives her some hope. Because in his language, there were two words for dog. And Jesus uses the diminutive, the word meaning little dog or puppy, doggy. I mean, it's a little bit like this, this scene, um, you may have heard the story, where a guy walks into a cafe and he's got a dog, a little dog, one of these miniature poodles that doesn't really count as a dog, but people call them dogs. And he has to leave it outside. He goes into the cafe and this big burly guy follows him in and he goes up to the first guy and says, you better go and check on your little excuse for a dog outside because I left my bull mastiff out there and I don't think there's going to be much of your dog left. And so the, the first guy scuttles out quickly and then comes back in looking a bit sheepish and says, I don't quite know how to tell you this, but my dog just killed your dog. And the big guy goes, ah, how, did it, how did that happen? And the first guy says, he got stuck in your dog's throat. <laughs> Je- Jesus is talking here about a little dog, a, a, a puppy dog, you know, a, a cute little dog. He's hinting to this woman. He's saying, in spite of what it appears that I'm doing, I do regard you with affection. Uh, uh, there is hope here. Will you keep trusting me? And she does. She says, this is one of the most wonderful expressions of faith in the Bible. She says, verse 27, Yes, Lord, calling Jesus Lord for the third time in this story, still respectfully persevering and wrestling with Jesus. Yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's tables. I mean, even the little doggies get to eat the crumbs underneath the children's chairs. And if you've seen children at work at the meal table, you know there are plenty of crumbs under their chairs. She's saying, but I know I'm not an Israelite. I know I I don't qualify. I accept that. But I believe that you have got enough on your table even for me. And I need it now. You know, in our world, what we do is we... We basically assert our rights. If you look at the dispute unfolding can still between the ports of Auckland and the, 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 um, the Maritime Union, what you see there are, are, are people standing on their respective rights. This woman is not doing that. She's doing something we don't really understand very well these days. This is a, a rightless kind of assertion. She's saying to Jesus, she's saying, don't give me what I deserve I'm not saying 
I'm not asking you to give me what I deserve because, because of my goodness. I'm asking you to give me what I don't deserve because of your goodness. I still believe that you have got enough even for me. And so Jesus says to her, in full hearing of his disciples, verse 28, Woman, you have great faith. Your child is healed. Now, just the previous chapter, Jesus said to his disciples, You numbskulls, you've got little faith, is the term he uses. That probably still would have been ringing in their ears, those words. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's, he's showing his disciples, he's telling his disciples, see this woman? Even though she's a Gentile, a woman from Tyre and Sidon, no less, she understands me better than you do. She realizes that I'm not just the Jewish Messiah, I am the Savior of the world. And there is more than enough at my table for her, for anyone who comes to me. Jesus is saying God doesn't play favorites like we do. God will welcome anyone who comes to him as they are. And isn't that what Easter was all about? Good Friday. Christ died, Peter said. Peter, who was here on this occasion. Christ died for sins, once for all. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. God welcomes and embraces all who will come to him as they are. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? You know, I, I think sometimes I, I, I wonder about it because I know myself and what I'm really like. John Newton was um, the slave trader back in the 18th century, didn't live a life of moral glory at all, but he came to faith in Jesus. He became an Anglican minister after much uh, trials and tribulations. And he ended up writing this, the, the hymn Amazing Grace. But he also wrote a number of other things, a number of letters that have been recorded. One of the letters he wrote to a man who was deeply distressed about his own sinfulness. This man was saying, look, I, I find it hard to believe that God could really accept me and, and embrace me and delight in me. And this is what Newton wrote in reply. He said this, You say you feel overwhelmed with guilt and a sense of unworthiness. You say it's hard to understand how a holy God could accept such an awful person as yourself. You then express not only a low opinion of yourself, which is right, but also too low an opinion of the person, work, and promises of the Redeemer, which is wrong. I reckon one of the greatest prayers in the English language is the prayer that was written based on this story. Thomas Cranmer, Archbishop of, um, of, uh, of the Anglican Church back in the time of King Henry VIII and, and King Edward, he wrote a prayer for communion, for when God's people gather at the communion table. It was in the first book of common prayer. And this is how it goes. Remember, it was written on the basis of this story. It goes like this. It's on the screen. We do not presume to come to this, your table, merciful Lord, trusting in our unrighteousness, but in your manifold and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather the crumbs under your table, but you are the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy. Jesus will welcome whoever comes to him. 
however they are. But as the story suggests, along with this open invitation, this open offer of access, comes a challenge. Jesus accepts all who come to him. He expects us to do so too. And this is why I think we have this story in Matthew's gospel. At Easter, Jesus didn't just die to take away our sins. He rose again. As Reuben was saying last, last week, he rose again to create in himself one new humanity, one new community that showcases to the whole world God's plan to bring everything together in Christ. A new community where there is neither male nor female, Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, rich nor poor, beautiful nor ugly, talented or ordinary, young or old, but all one in Christ Jesus. You know, I think there are very few evangelistic strategies more effective in our world today than simply the church being the church and embodying this gospel of Jesus who who creates for for himself a people who are truly one. In the news this week, there's been this story, um, tragic story of this young black teenager, Trayvon Martin, who was who was shot by a vigilante neighborhood watch peacekeeper guy. Um, terrible story. It reminded me of another story to have emerged a few years ago from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa. Um, you may recall that after the fall of apartheid, Nelson Mandela's government established this, this Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And out of it came all these stories of pain and brokenness and injustice. And on one of the, 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 at one of the hearings, um, a policeman called Vanderbrook, Mr. Vanderbrook, um, recounted an incident where he went to a house and shot an 18-year-old black teenager. And with other police officers, they, they burned his body in, in fire, rolling it around like a, ple- a piece of barbecue meat to destroy the evidence. Um, and then eight years later, he went back to the same house and he, he grabbed the boy's father. And while his wife watched on, he and his officers, they bound him, poured petrol, petrol on his head, and ignited it. Well, as the, as the, um, the, the, the court listened to the story unfolding at this Truth and Reconciliation Commission hearing, a hush descended as this widow, this lady who had lost her son, then her husband, was asked how, how she responded. And the judge said to her, what do you want from Mr. Vanderbrook? And she said, I want him to go to the place where they burned my husband's body. And I want them to pick up the dust so that I can give my husband a decent burial. And with his head down, the police officer nodded in agreement. But then the lady said this, Mr. Vanderbrook took from me the only family I have but I still have a lot of love to give. So twice a month, I want Mr. Vanderbrook to visit the slum, the ghetto, and spend a day with me so that I can be a mother to him. I want him to know that God forgives him, that I forgive him. And I would like now, if I may, to come and embrace him because I want him to know 
that that forgiveness is real. And as this old lady made her way to the witness box, some people in the courtroom spontaneously started singing the words of amazing grace. But Vanderbrook, this police officer, didn't hear it. Because, as Philip Yancey says in a book where he recounts all this, he says, Mr. Vanderbrook had collapsed, overwhelmed. It's said that we live in a post-Christian society, a post-modern culture, where, where people are generally suspicious of large truth claims. Well, I reckon if people in New Zealand today are going to believe the gospel, they need to see it embodied in Christian communities that are united and loving, as Jesus intended, where we accept, forgive, and embrace one another, just as Jesus embraces us. Let's pray. Our loving God, we are amazed when we think of how you so wonderfully and graciously accept us and the cost that it was for you to do that. Lord, you know us, you know our, our lives, our circumstances. You know our relationships. You know this community. We present our lives to you again and invite you, God, to so work in us, to so fill us with your grace that we would truly be here, a community that expresses the gospel by the way we love and accept one another. No categories, no exclusion. Help us to embrace each other as you have embraced us. Amen. Connection Point is a joint production between Connection Resources and Shore Community Christian Church. If you would like a free copy of today's message, please email us or phone us on 0800 90 30 90. To subscribe to our free podcasts or to listen to the latest message, go to connectionresources.org.nz.